Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And hey, folks, if I sound a little bit different than usual today, that is because I am recording not from my usual location, but from a top secret secondary location that may or may not be uh, the dungeon underneath a German monastery that's full of battle axes and and plate armor for some reason. Or it also may or may not be uh, the basement of my parents' house. (laughs) Well, uh, I mean, you sound fine on my end, so uh, I, I imagine it's going to sound fine for the, the listener as well here. Okay, I just didn't want anybody thrown off or, or thinking I'd made a permanent switch to a different microphone or room or whatever. Uh, but before we got going here, we were indeed talking about uh, the room I'm in is just covered in the posters that I thought were cool in high school, uh, a solid majority of which have Jim Morrison on them. <laughs> Well, you also have the uh, the, the Monty Python um, uh, poster on on the wall there from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's still cool. Yeah. I think that that still holds up. And which Rob initially thought was a family portrait. Well, I couldn't see all of it. Your head was blocking <laughs> part of it, so I just saw sort of half of Eric Idle's face uh, with the big mustache, and I was like, could be like a seventies, early eighties family photo. Could be an album cover. I'm not recognizing, but then yeah, when you moved your head, it was clear. It was Monty Python. I could see it. Yes, uh, Eric Idle could well be my uh, my Wild West outlaw grandpa. <laughs> well, we we have a pretty fun movie to talk about this week. Uh, we're returning once more to the exciting world of Spanish B movies, and this one's also a true monster fest, a real real monster slobber knocker here. Except you're not getting 
the universal monsters of Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and the Mummy. No, you're getting uh, Count Janos. You're getting the monster of Farankelsalon. <laughs> I get, I'm not even sure if I'm For, saying this right. Farankelsalon, I think. Farankelsalon. Yes, Farankelsalon's monster. Remember, you don't want. You can't call him Farankelsalon. He's Farankelsalon's monster. No, you can call monster. him Farankelsalon. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but there's more. There's Taltet the Mummy. And then there is the werewolf, Count Valdemar Daninsky. What a cast this is. Now, how could you fit all of these classic monsters into a film unless it also had Abbott and Costello in it? Well, <laughs> yeah, the, the alchemy of this film is going to be kind of fun to discuss. But the, the result is Assignment Terror, which comes out in 1970, also known as The Monsters of Terror. That's the direct translation of the original Spanish title, uh, Los Monstros del Terror. It's a Spanish-German-Italian co-production. It came out under various names. I, I heard that the original screenplay uh, had the title Operation Terror, and I think in Mexico it was released as, uh, as the Spanish of Operation Terror. But it also had a number of other release titles, which is pretty standard of the day, including um, some releases that promoted it as Dracula versus Frankenstein. Yes, there is a, an off-brand Dracula. There is an off-brand Frankenstein in this film, but they never fight each other. They're on the same team. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think it was also somewhere called Frankenstein versus the Bloodsucker. Did I read that right? Uh, I think probably so. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that that also is, is not accurate. No. Uh, <laughs> but it, they, know, they have very different energies, but they're both bad guys, though. There is monster on monster combat. Yes. But it's just it's just not that matchup. It's ultimately werewolf versus everybody. I think that's right. Yeah. And and I believe also, didn't this film in a way give rise to a series or other sequels that were more focused on the Wolfman as a hero? Wait, we just went off mic to look up whether what I said was correct. It was not correct. This is the third in a series of like a dozen movies that are all Paul Nashy centric and they're of a very hairy persuasion. Yes. Paul Nashy playing this werewolf character, the doomed Count Valdemar Daninsky. It's very much based on, on the, the energy of the old Universal Wolfman movies, the old Lon Chaney Jr. stuff, which uh, Paul Nashi apparently just really idolized, looked up to, to, to this man and looked up to these films and channeled that in his performance and in his writing of these various pictures. But they're not a continuous narrative either. Like you don't need to you don't need to settle in and start watching the dozen or so Count Valdemar Daninsky uh, films. I think you can jump in wherever you want and sort of make your choice based on how weird that particular uh, picture is, because they, they seem to get pretty weird. I have not seen. Uh, any of the other ones yet, uh, but they they vary greatly. Some I think are more traditional, sort of universal esque gothic horror films about a doomed werewolf character. But there are others mm. where he like travels to like China and Tibet uh, and battles other monsters or encounters uh, martial arts. Uh, the werewolf monks. goes west. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's plenty of places that a, a werewolf on the run can go to. Uh, so. What would, we, what would you say for elevator pitch? It's something like Assignment Terror is a film in which aliens from the planet Umo decide to <laughs> conquer the weak, pathetic, emotional, impulsive Earthlings by resurrecting store brand versions of the Universal Monster movies, uh, monsters. 
Yeah, pretty much. This is not plan nine from outer space, but I'm guessing this might be plan 10 or perhaps plan eight. I'm not sure where uh, this particular plan falls into place. But yeah, it seems to revolve around unslaying famous monsters. And if memory serves, they at least make passing reference to a plan to sort of combine elements of them to make like an army of super monsters that will conquer the planet for them. But we never get to that point where you have like even a prototype uh, for our heroes to battle, which I I assume that's where they wanted to go. And maybe the budget wasn't there. This film has at least 17 unfired Chekhov's guns. It has Chekhov's (laughs) golem, which is never delivered upon. There's tons of stuff like that. Just sort of an issue that's raised and then forgotten about. Uh, Another thing, I wonder what you think about this, Rob. I detected a critique uh, in which Assignment Terror is actually a, a film attacking certain types of meritocracy narratives by ironically contrasting the aliens in this movie, giving these incessant smug monologues about their superior worthiness and intellect, and compared to the humans, their relative lack of impulsiveness and emotion and contrasting that with scenes of those same aliens getting killed by Frankenstein because, oops, they had a crush on somebody. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I think that's a that's a good read on, on what's happening in the film. It, it's it, it is hard to hard to drill down to the core of what Paul Nashi, uh, who not only stars in it but also wrote the screenplay, was really going for here. Other than you know, clearly there's a lot of love for monsters and monster movies. And uh, and it has been pointed out, including pointed out by film historian Troy Howarth in the um, commentary track for the Blu-ray edition that I watched uh, for this from uh, Scorpion Releasing. Like he really points out that Paul Nashi, along with uh, Osario and Jess Franco, like, it was really kind of a prophet of horror in Spain at the time. Like he was basically a a voice a creator, an actor at the time coming into Spanish cinema, granted at a, at a B or lower level and saying <laughs> monster movies, horror, this is what we need. These are amazing things. We need them. And, uh, and to a certain extent, maybe Spain was perhaps not ready at the time yet, but uh, eventually they received the message and embraced it. So much like this film might not have been made under ideal conditions, I also watched it under non-ideal conditions. <laughs> uh, normally I would try to, you know, for a, for a Weird House movie, I try to put it on the big screen if possible. But uh, I watched this one on an iPad on a bed at my in-law's house during baby nap time. Uh, but <laughs> nevertheless, I could tell that this movie is a jolly good time and should become a staple of Halloween goof reels uh, the world around. Multiple times I accidentally woke my baby up with my laughter. <laughs> that, well, that, that in and of itself is kind of terrifying, but also good. A uh, good sign on the laughter side there. I mean, she got right back to sleep. It was okay, but oh, okay. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's I, that, it was that kind of viewing experience. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a fun flick. It, uh, it, it holds up pretty well. It's, uh, it, it is better than some reviewers would have you believe. I think I, I, before we, I actually watched it, I'd run across some reviews who maybe, um, uh, you know, heaped a little bit too much uh, dirt on it and were a little too quick to dismiss it. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a lower budget picture, but there are many ways in which they seem to do a really good job with their limited resources. 
Uh, so it's it's uh, it's very watchable and also I guess kind of uh, shocking for some for a picture from this time period and and from the sort of the, the B cinema horror world it's not really graphic or anything there's some there's some bloody scenes in there but uh, nothing too bad we've we've definitely seen worse on the show uh, yeah as far as the blood goes it's very ketchup level it's it's not uh, anything too convincing yeah one more thing I wanted to say about this movie. For a non-alien, non-monster psychotronic element to discuss, can we give a nod to the interior decor <laughs> in uh, Assignment Terror? I was So I was watching it with Rachel, and she could not help but observe the pattern of interiors of people's homes with wallpaper on every surface, including the ceilings, ceiling wallpaper <laughs> with chaotic or disorganized color schemes that, that don't really match one another. It was disorienting at times. Yeah, there's some wild wallpaper and uh, in, in general indoor decor in this uh, in this particular film. Yeah. Also, there's a great go-go club where the the walls are just uh, out of this world, uh, and it made me think also about. I mentioned this earlier, but the fact that the aliens take up residence in what is repeatedly called a monastery. But it's just like it's like a castle. It's full of suits of armor and battle axes. Yeah, I noticed I ended up doing this thing where uh, on the Blu-ray, the Scorpion releasing Blu-ray, which, again, is, is, is really great. Um, you had the choice of watching it uh, in Spanish with English subtitles or English dubbing. Uh, and, and I went with the English dubbing, but I yes. used the subtitles as well. And if the subtitles were were different because it's you know it's it's not all interconnected there, of course. And so the subtitles were saying castle, and the dubbing was saying monastery. So I don't know which is is truer to the original. I see. Uh, question about your viewing experience. I wonder if there are different versions of this uh, this out there right now. On mine, I would call the editing rather choppy there were a lot of moments where the the film would cut before the sound would change or something like a sound from a previous scene continues into the new scene or it would uh, or there would be a cut right in the middle of a musical theme without the melody resolving hmm i don't know i didn't notice anything that jarring in my viewing of it uh but I, but i was also uh, taking more notes than usual during it so, uh, except for the final 20 minutes of the picture, in which case <laughs> I set the computer aside and just settled in for the monster battle. Uh, but no, I they might have cleaned it up a bit on this because this is a pretty, pretty good look. It's a very colorful film. Um, it's, I mean, it's not a Mario Bava picture by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, there's some fun gels and there are some nice colors in the mad science labs. There's some great scenes of... Um, uh, you know, some, some various towns and locations in, uh, I think mostly in Spain, but also a little bit in Germany. And, uh, it's, it's a pleasant picture to, to look at it. It doesn't, it doesn't look as cheap as perhaps it might've been. Oh, and speaking of location, yeah, the castles are also really great. Um, there are a lot of these like ruined cathedral, ruined castle, uh, sets slash locations. And in many respects, they look a lot like the very same locations you see in other Spanish horror movies, mm -hmm. like uh, Tomb of the Blind Dead movies and, yep. uh, um, horror rises from the tomb. Uh, but they look really good and it, I'm, I'm not entirely clear on the science of applying fake spider webs to things, but boy, did they apply some fake spider webs in this movie and the, the results look pretty darn good. They, they lay it on thick. Yeah. 
Uh, so I, I mentioned the commentary track by film historian Troy uh, Holoth, and I want to point out just a few other little points uh, that he makes. It's you know, this is a a guy who's uh, who's written, I believe, a whole book on Paul Nashie. So he's uh, per- perhaps the uh, uh, the English language expert on the man. But a couple of things that he pointed out that I thought were rather telling with this film. So first of all, this is a film that you don't have to be a film historian or even an expert in genre to realize that it has a bit of a crisis of identity. There are parts of it that feel more like a universal horror movie uh, knockoff. There are other parts that feel more like a like a police thriller, spy movie sort of a thing, uh, you know, kind of late 60s Bond sort of stuff. And according to Howarth, part of that is because Spain wasn't really ready for horror yet. So again, Nashi, Osario, Franco would all be three key players in bringing about the Spanish horror scene. But it's telling that so much of the film keeps switching back to non-horror fare. So things get a little monstery, but then they get kind of super villainy again or then they get yeah. and you spend a lot of time with the, the uh, investigators in the film that are just uh, kind of living bond-esque lifestyles as they investigate missing persons cases yeah there are a lot of non-monster scenes that could be from danger diabolic or something yeah uh and i i thought those were pretty fun too um uh, uh, yeah. I mean, describes them as sort of uh less exciting and, and maybe kind of bringing the uh, engagement down a bit but I, I thought they were pretty fun he also points out that Nashi was a huge fan of 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, and that's heavily reflected in the film. There's a vampire sideshow uh, bit that apparently is right out of House of Frankenstein. He also points out that, yeah, most of it's uh, filmed in Spain, but some shots are in Germany. Again, it was a Spanish-German-Italian production. And this was really interesting. He points out that it's set in Germany. And at the time, it was actually forbidden for Spanish horror movies to be set in Spain. It had to be somewhere else. And Germany was often a good pick because, you know, there's a certain gothic um, uh, allure to German settings uh, with horror stories like this. And also German money was often involved in the productions. So there was a, you know, a, a shoe in uh, to, to get some, uh, maybe even get some some actual locations in Germany. Uh, but this reminds me of how films like Return of the Blind Dead, which we previously covered on Weird House Cinema, I believe that film was set in Portugal. And uh, wasn't The Laurelized Grasp set in Germany? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was a, a, supposed to be a, a, a German horror story set uh, in a German locale. So that's a funny regulation. Like it was sort of a type of censorship law and it wasn't that you can't make horror movies. It was just like you can't set them in Spain. Yeah. Like we're not saying that horror doesn't exist, but just not within the borders of Spain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you could almost take a weird nationalist interpretation on that. Like horror only takes place elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Monsters only exist in other countries. All right, well, on that note, let's go ahead and hear some of the trailer audio for Assignment Terror. Umo 206 calling Earth. Reply, please. Contact made. Kirian Werner. Surgeon, killed in war action. Maleva Kerstein, doctor of biochemistry, killed in automobile accident. Both persons have required characteristics and have been incarnated by our envoys. They will contact you. 
Remember, success of mission depends on exploiting to the full the superstitions prevalent among the Earth creatures. The first objective is Blaustadt Fairground. <coughs> Now, I think that had a little bit of the groovy music that we'll refer back to in it. Uh, there's uh, this is, Again, this is a picture that is, and you see it reflected in the, the score. At times, the score is very spooky and scary and kind of gothic, but other times it cuts loose and it's a little bit groovy. It's a little, you know, it's uh, go-go dancers and, uh, and so forth. It's my happening, baby, and it freaks me out. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, let's start talking about some of the folks involved in this. At the top, we have the credited director of Tullio Di Michelli, who lived 1914 through 1992. Uh, Argentinian-born Spanish director, writer, and film producer. He directed and wrote, I think, a good 60 films from 1944 through 1987, and is apparently best known for his work in tango films. Um, and worked with some major tango stars of the golden age of Argentine cinema, such as uh, Tita Morello. Uh, tango, of course, is a, is a dance style, and it originated in the Rio de la Plata region on the border of Argentina and Uruguay during the late 19th century. And uh, I have to admit, like tango cinema is not something that I had any familiarity with or even really knew was a thing, but it makes sense given if you have any kind of popular craze, if it is occurring during or in close proximity to the age of cinema, somebody's going to say, hey, we can do a movie about that. Sure. So a lot of the bigger films that uh, Di Michelli was involved with were, were either tango films or they were serious golden age dramas. But he seems to have dipped his toes into various genres over the years, including westerns, swashbucklers, thrillers, and comedies. But if I'm not mistaken, this may be the only film he worked on that could be described as sort of a pure horror slash science fiction property to the extent that it is, because, again, it's also kind of confused in exactly what it is. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out that there are additional names that are mentioned as having uh, some sort of hand in directing this picture, uh, all of them uncredited on the, the uh, initial release. Uh, Argentine director Hugo Freganese, Spanish director Antonio Isasi Isasmendi, and German producer Erbhard Mischner. Uh, they all have uncredited um, uh, directing mentions on IMDb with Sassi Esmendi noted as having actually finished the film. There were allegedly a lot of production problems due to financial difficulties, which also impacted their ability to bring what sounds like a pretty loaded script to life. Uh, the original screenplay apparently had golems and flying saucers in it, in addition to all the other fantastic elements that are already present. I think they basically told the screenwriter, hey, go go nuts, have a great time. We, we've got, we got all the money in the world to make this film, and uh, just go ahead and write it however your heart uh, pulls you. But I feel like they didn't even go back and, and correct for that in post, because uh, I, I mentioned the many unfired Chekhov's guns in this. Yeah. One of them is the golem. We're given a full setup with like a page in a book that displays the golem, like in along with all the other pages of the monsters we're going to meet. So we're promised a golem and then there's just no golem. It never, never mentioned again. 
Yeah. And then I, I wonder how much of it is, is that and how much of it is, is budget cuts. And then how much of it is the screenwriter just bringing a lot of zeal and a lot of ideas to the table? <laughs> because, again, it's a movie that has like four monsters, aliens, um, various murders and kidnappings. And uh, there's a lot to work with here. Well, they could have at least gone back and scrubbed that out of the scene, like cut before he turns to the golem page. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. So uh, the the screenplay writer here is also Paul Nashi. I can't remember if we've mentioned that already. But yes, Paul Nashi <laughs> wrote it, uh, screenplay and story. And he plays the werewolf Valdemar Daninsky in this. Uh, yeah, this is the legendary Paul Nashi who lived 1934 through 2009. Paul Nashi is both a beast and a machine. You know how there's like the 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 classic uh, uh, tales tales of struggle. You know, you have man versus nature and man versus the machine. Paul Nashi is all three of those things. Yeah, he is a he's a, a fascinating figure, a fascinating cinematic presence. This is only the the second film of his that we've talked about. The other being the 1973 film Horror Rises from the Tomb, in which he plays an undying beheaded wizard. And, and in that, he has a lot more screen time. He has far more opportunity to really chew the scenery. In this film, he's one of several monsters. He doesn't have as much screen time. Uh, and he only has a few scenes where he really gets to uh, you know, break out and bring all the emotion, uh, often when changing into a werewolf. Oh, and by the way, if you're trying to picture it, this is not the American werewolf in London, long snout dog-like werewolf. This is the classic universal style werewolf, the Lon Chaney Jr. style werewolf. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's where Paul Nashi's heart was. And so that's the sort of werewolf you see with Count Valdemar Daninsky, who, again, pops up in a good dozen films over the years. Um, uh, we, we talked about Paul Nashi a good bit on the horror rises from the tomb episode, and I'm not going to go through all of it again, but yeah, basically you have a guy that was born into a, you know, a pretty successful furrier's family during the, uh, during the Spanish civil war. And initially he was going to pursue a serious adult life of professional weightlifting and architecture, but deep down he wanted to be the wolf man. He'd seen, um, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman at a very early age and apparently had a huge impact on him. He idolized Lon Chaney Jr. And his career is a result of, of that longing. I remember thinking in Horror Rises from the Tomb that he also uh, he sort of wrote the movie as a showcase for his own coolness. Like this is a movie <laughs> about how Paul Nashie is awesome. Yeah, well, he did play three characters in that movie. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, several of them, he gets to show off his muscles. Uh, pretty good. Paul mm -hmm. Nashi is buff. But all, another thing I had a question about, what do you think it means that Paul Nashi spent his life wanting to be Lon Chaney Jr. and wanting to play these werewolf characters? And he came from a furrier family. Hmm. I'm I'm assuming uh, that's something that uh, that people like Howarth have have explored. I mean, there's just mm -hmm. there seems like there's some sort of connection there. Yeah, so he spends his childhood, uh, you know, walking through the shop, rubbing on these animal furs, and either thinks, I could be this fur. This fur could cover me. I could be the wolfman. Or thinks, I could be the creature that hunts these animals in the wild. Yeah. So, again, in this film, he's he's not the main character, uh, but he still, he was able to write himself a number of cool parts. <laughs> he, he He got his stuff in, for sure. Now, uh, the top-billed actor in this, probably the, at the time certainly the most famous actor in this film, 
is Michael Rennie, who lived 1909 mm. through 1971. He plays our chief um, antagonist, I guess, uh, Dr. Odo Vornoff. He, in this movie, is kind of like a cross between uh, Grand Moff Tarkin and King Charles of England. Yeah, yeah. Except he's also an alien, and I wasn't sure on this. Is he also an alien that's stolen a dead man's body? Yes, that's correct. Yes. The main two aliens in this film are somehow like alien psychic projections that inhabit the resurrected corpses of Earth scientists. (laughs) Which, you know, if you're going to do it, that's that's a pretty good way to do it. Less paperwork that way. So, like, they refer to this character as Dr. Vornoff, which, little side note, a second possible Ed Wood connection. So the plot of this film is, in a way, a redo of Plan 9 from Outer Space. You know, aliens are going to resurrect the dead or monsters to attack the living, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's part of their invasion plan. The other thing is the main alien is named Dr. Vornoff, which is Bela Lugosi's character's name in Bride of the Monster, the other main uh, Ed Wood movie from the 50s. Well, that can't be a mistake, um, in part because I know that Howarth points out that there are a few other characters in this whose names are clear connections to uh, universal monster pictures. So, um, I mean, I'm not entirely sure if Paul Nashie had seen uh, any Ed Wood movies, but I mean, clearly he was a big fan of guys like uh, Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi. So mm-hmm. it seems probable. Or they could be taking from a common source. I wonder if Ed Wood got the name Vornoff from some other previous monster movie. That's true. Great, great minds may just think alike. Yeah. So Michael Rennie, uh, a name that I imagine a lot of you are familiar with. Either you remember him from playing Klaatu in the science fiction film The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951. Or if you haven't seen that, you probably know that he is referenced in the lyrics for science fiction double feature uh, from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, other films of note include 1960's The Lost World, 1969's The Battle of El Alamein, and 1952's uh, Les Miserables, in which he plays uh, Jean Valjean. Uh, this is the main character, as I remember. I've uh, It's been a while since I sped read uh, <laughs> uh, this novel in school, and it's been a while since I've seen the musical. Oh, yeah. Well, John Valjean, yes, he is the main character. He is the uh, it's all, you know, his it's his redemption arc. He begins as a as a as a thief who is imprisoned after stealing bread to, I think, feed his sister's starving child or something. And then he's in prison for many years, but then he escapes prison and then he dedicates his life to goodness. And he's very strong and he's pursued all the time by the inspector Javert. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then he. um yeah, he meets that hunchback, and he has to wear that iron mask for a while. And he, <laughs> he half his face gets scarred, and he starts living in that opera house. Yeah, there are a lot of ins and outs, as I recall. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm a sucker for the musical. I, I love what this. <laughs> so uh, Michael Rennie was also in 1953's The Robe. He was in a lot of war films and thrillers over the course of his long career. Fair amount of TV as well. Um, he pops up in the 1960s Batman series as the villain Sandman, hmm. who I don't remember this guy, but he he does not look like whatever you're thinking. If you're not familiar with this and you're imagining like a DC comic book Sandman, this is not it. He he has like a big fur coat on. Uh, I just looked him up. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> well, uh, to, to come back to the theme of fur coats. Uh, yes. I, I don't know what else to say about him. He's very distinguished looking. 
Uh, he, he looks like a, like a man of great stature and who deserving of respect. And he's wearing a gigantic, thick, thick fur coat. Yeah. So, uh, assignment terror was his final picture, but it isn't the only European B movie that he did. He also appeared in Antonio Margheriti's 1968 film, the young, the evil and the savage, which was, which was a Jalo film that was also released under the title naked. You die, man. They were great with titles, weren't they? Yeah. But so b- before this, I mainly knew him as Klaatu. He's Klaatu in the famous, as you said, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, he's great in that role. In this movie, uh, you know, Michael Rennie, he's got good presence, but I'm going to be honest, he's kind of phoning it in. I, I get the feeling yeah. he's sort of collecting a paycheck on this film. Yeah. But still, he's Michael Rennie, so, you know, he's he's excelling, even if he's, if, if for his own ability, he's just kind of keeping it at mid-level. Yes. Now, a lot of the secondary actors, though, give much more impassioned performances. And I would say one mm-hmm. of them is Karen Dorr. Yeah, she plays Maliva or Maleva, um, who is a scientist. She's, so she's a scientist, a dead scientist, right? No. Yeah. Yes, yes both yes, of them. Yes, she's are. a dead scientist. Okay. She, she's just like uh, Michael Rennie. She plays an alien who is like a psychic projection inhabiting the body, the resurrected body of a dead Earth scientist. I was really confused about who she played at first because she is probably best remembered as a redheaded actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, She has red hair in 1967's You Only Live Twice, the Bond film. She's she's not a Bond girl. She's a Bond girl villain, right? She's um, an underling of one of the adversaries in that picture. She works for Donald Pleasance as Blofeld. And there's a scene (laughs) where I think she's supposed to kill James Bond, but instead she's won over by his charms and somehow he gets away. And then as punishment, uh, Donald Pleasance drops her into his pit of piranhas and she is stripped to the bone by the by the toothy fish. Ah, man, we still need to come back and do uh, episodes on piranhas. Uh, but anyway, uh, Karen Dorr was also in 1967's The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism with Christopher Lee. It's <laughs> a very tasteful sounding film. <laughs> yeah. Um, various German films of the 50s and 60s, including 1962's The Carpet of Horror, a title that got me really excited at first because I was imagining some sort of a monster carpet, like ho- hopefully some sort of shag carpet that eats people. But yeah. it doesn't seem to be about that. It seems to be about like some sort of like um, gas-based murders or something, some sort of thriller. What? Okay. Then why is it yeah. called that? I don't know. I don't know. But I, I'm, I'm less curious now that it doesn't seem like it's a monster carpet. Yeah. Death carpet, the carpet that eats people. Uh, yeah. Well, so in this one, she, yeah, she plays an alien and uh, she, she sort of learns to love before the other alien main alien does, or I guess he, maybe he never does, but she gets a lot of stern lecturing by Michael Rennie. Yeah. Like there's a whole lot of uh, lecturing going on in this film about passion and about how passion is a human weakness. And even though you've taken on the form slash body of a dead human, don't you dare have human emotions because yeah. they will, they'll mess you up. They'll derail the whole plan. And of course that's exactly what seems to happen. Right. That they're what makes humanity weak and why we are the rightful inheritors of this planet. We're, they're emotional and we're not. They're impulsive and we're not. Now, our hero of sorts in this film is, uh, would be Inspector Toberman, played by Craig Hill, who lived 1926 through 2014. 
Uh, we kept laughing at him. I, I think this detective, he's supposed to, he's, he's very handsome and he's supposed to, you know, woo the, the, the lady who we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but he is just such a dope. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, now Craig Hill himself uh, playing the character, American actor had a small role in 1950s, all about Eve. He also appears in the Italian horror film, the bloodstained shadow from 78, uh, he was apparently a 20th Century Fox contract player who then moved to Spain, mostly to work in Western. So if you look him up, you'll see a lot of pictures of him in cowboy hats. He has just very expressive eyes, uh, you know, eyes that really, really look good uh, staring out from under the brim of a cowboy hat, that kind of thing. In this, he's your, he, I think he does ultimately does a good job, but he's he's playing your standard smoking and drinking detective who just might fall in love a few times. <laughs> rather inappropriately yeah. um, as he investigates the case. Yeah, this film has several scenes of like, oh, guess these people are kissing now. Okay. Yeah. And the the main person he ends up kissing is this character, um, Ilsa Sternberg, Ilsa, played by Patty Shepard, uh, who lived 1945 through 2013. Uh, she was an American-born actor who appeared in a whole host of notable Spanish B-movies up through the late 1980s. Uh, I believe her connection in, with Spain began as a child, as she was the daughter of uh, United States Air Force Brigadier General Leland C. Shepard, Jr. Uh, she's, um, uh, she's the sister of actor Judith Chapman, who's mostly known for her soap opera work, but also pops up in films like 1994's Night of the Running Man and 2021's King Richard. Hmm. But yeah, Patty Shepard is a face you'll recognize if you watch a lot of Spanish films from the uh, from, from this time period, from the 1970s especially. Uh, her many credits include 71's The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. That's a, another Paul Nashy werewolf picture, and I believe she plays the vampire or a vampire in that. Okay, I'd watch that. Yeah. She's in 72's My Dear Killer, 1972's The House Without Frontiers, which I don't think has any connection to Peter Gabriel. But, <laughs> um, 1973's Crypt of the Living Dead, 1987's Rest in Pieces, 1988's Slugs, and 1988's Edge of the Axe. Slugs. Is that a uh, is that a Juan Piquer Simone movie? It is, yes. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty gross one, pretty stupid one that we mm-hmm. may have to come back to. Oh yeah, um, but oh oh, but she Patty Shepard was also in a whole in a, a string of westerns as well. Uh, her westerns include Twenty Paces to Death from 1970, The Legend of Frenchy King from 71, The Man Called Noon from 73, and 1974's The Stranger and the Gunfighter. Uh, I cannot emphasize enough that The Stranger and the Gunfighter stars Lee Van Cleef opposite Hong Kong action star Lo Lei. It was a Kung Fu spaghetti Western comedy film directed by Antonio Margaretti and co-produced by the Shaw brothers. Whoa. I, yeah, I've never heard of that. I would watch it. I will also say you included a picture of, uh, of Patty Shepard in her role in the man called noon. And she looks awesome. She, she does cowboy cowboy get up really well. Absolutely. Yeah. So like I said, she she was kind of a, a standard casting of the time period. All right, so going back to the aliens that are inhabiting human form, the other main uh, alien crony is Dr. Kirian, played by um, Angel Del Pozo, Spanish actor who also pops up in the star-studded 1973 film The Three Musketeers. 
uh, the 72 Spanish film Horror Express. He basically did a lot of Westerns and then later horror movies. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have uh, Manuel de Blas, who plays Count Janos de Milhoff. <laughs> this is essentially our... our our discount Dracula. <laughs> uh, this is where we're, oh, so we're getting into the mo the monsters now. Yeah, we're getting into the monsters now. This is our Dracula character, and also one of two counts. It's kind of confusing uh, that our werewolf is a count, but also our vampire is a count. That's true. Okay, so as we go, I'm going to rate the monsters. Uh, I, I will say that. Uh, this movie's Dracula. I enjoyed every time he was on screen because he had a kind of a pleasurable, amusing appearance, but also Count Yanush is just an absolute cretin, just a wretched dweeb. And uh, Rachel and I were getting offended by the shots where they tried to do the Bela Lugosi callbacks with him, like the single shaft of light falling across his eyes as he leans over you. And yeah, he, he is no Bella, but I did love his hilarious acrobatics and the way he walked around with, he never closed his mouth. He's just walking around going, eh, the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Like, like the director's like, we want to see those teeth. Yeah. For those teeth. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a great Dracula. And luckily, the film seems to realize that. Yeah. <laughs> so they kind of, like, sideline him. You would think Dracula yeah. would be the ringleader like he is in Monster Squad or something. But instead, he's kind of he's kind of a second fiddle player to, like, uh, for Frankenstein or, excuse me, for Ronxalon. Yeah, he, he has more Nosferatu energy than he has Dracula energy in this, um, despite clearly having the, the Dracula makeup. Anyway, the, the actor here is a Spanish actor who pops up in quite a few things over the years. He's, he's still active, apparently, and has been active since 61. He was in the uh, Armando Diosario 1974 Blind Dead movie, The Ghost Galleon. He was in 74's The Dead, The Devil, and The Flesh. He was in, some of these I'm just listing because the titles are great, 1977's A Dog Called Vengeance. Uh, <laughs> And then there's 1988 Slugs, which we already mentioned, 1990's The Monk, starring Paul McGann, and 1992's, oh, Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, Goya's oh, Ghost from oh 2006, boy. and 2022's Uncharted. Just small parts in those last three, but still, you know, he's still out there, still getting his, his face on camera. I watched Uncharted on a plane. Don't remember who this guy was. Uh, I think it was a very small part, but yeah. he's still out there. Uh, don't Don't particularly recommend that one. <laughs> Now, the monster of Faraxalon is played by Fernando Morolo, Spanish actor, active in film and TV through 2007. Um, nothing really stood out to me all that all that much, though. Um, I mean, he plays uh, a Frankenstein in this. So, uh, I'm going to say a uh, different review on the, the Frankenstein. So his makeup, not good. Makeup, not good at all. Uh, he looks kind of... Somehow they kind of make him look like Phil Hartman. So yep. I kept doing, uh, you might remember me from such monster films as, uh, you know, Frankenstein still cruising or... I don't remember what I said. But anyway, so he, he, he looks like Phil Hartman in kind of yellow-green, almost kind of vomit-colored makeup. It's not a great design, but he's a really good presence in this movie. He's sort of the main muscle for the villain. Yeah, yeah. When they initially unslay him or resurrect him, um, the evil alien doctor's like, he was powered by electricity. We're going to make him atomic. So we get <laughs> essentially an atomic Frankenstein in this. Well, we don't really see much that seems to indicate that there is truly atomic energy at play in his mm -hmm. um, uh, anatomy and physicality now. But uh, yeah, I agree. Strong presence in the film, but also 
Not the best Frankenstein makeup I've seen, not the worst. And also the makeup I found looks worse in photographs. When you see him in action, it looks a little better. I think part of it is that they didn't go for the smooth forehead. Uh, they seem to uh, tr- go ahead and incorporate the line between prosthetic forehead and actual yeah. forehead as kind of a scar, which, in, depending on what angle you're looking at it, can make it look faker. Yes, uh, agree. You could clearly see he was wearing a cap. Okay, but then there's Taltet the Mummy, played by Gene Reyes. Uh, oh, he only, only has like 13 credits that I could find and no birth or death dates. And he seems to have been frequently cast as indigenous Americans and Westerns or as Asian or Egyptian characters in various genre pictures. Um, for, for instance, he has an uncredited role in Jess Franco's 1969 The Castle of Fu Manchu starring Christopher Lee. Uh, he plays an Egyptian character in that. Oh, okay. That kind of thing. That aside, though, what do you think of the mummy costume? Well, the mummy costume was pretty good. And one strange thing about the... Okay, I, I have all kinds of questions about the different monsters' powers. I wonder if we should save that for when we talk about the plot. But I was not clear on what the mummy's powers are. Like, what can the mummy do? Um, well, like a lo- I think this is a common trap of mummy pictures. We may have <laughs> talked about this before. You get a mummy on screen. The mummy's really convincing as it's it's uh, kind of shambling around. But then how do you do the kills? And a lot of times the best you can do is kind of a loose strangle uh, and generally not a very convincing strangle. Um, I think I, I, I'm sure I've mentioned before that I think one of my favorite renditions of a killer mummy is actually in Tales from the Dark Side, the movie in which the uh, the mummy uh, like straightens out a coat hanger and removes somebody's brain through their nostril, oh, uh, yeah. which I thought was nice and uh, uh, and fitting, like fits in with the whole uh, mummification process. Uh, thematically appropriate murder. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of times, yeah, the mummies can be underwhelming once you actually get them on screen. You got to, you got to figure out how to use them in a threatening manner. And in this film, we see the mummy kill one dude who's already asleep, is not a main character. And he just kind of loosely hugs him to death in a matter of seconds. Yeah. That, is just sort of a proof of concept. It's right after they make the mummy arise and then he just attacks a random dude. I don't think the mummy in this film ever causes harm to any of the villain's enemies. No, but there's a cool <laughs> fight towards the end. We'll get to it. When, when, yeah. when the mummy actually has his final battle, it was a highlight of the film for me. Same here. Yes. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Now, just a, I think one final credit here on people involved in making the film. Franco Salina is credited with the music composer who scored several films, including 1970s Churchill's Leopards, a Spanish war film that starred Richard Harrison, Frank Brana. He's the Sam the Eagle looking guy that we've, we've mentioned before. Yep. Uh, Helga Linné, uh, who has been in a couple of other Spanish films that we've watched, and also uh, Klaus Kinski. On this film, I can't speak to the other films that he's worked on, but I don't know. I thought the music was pretty solid in here, in this one. It's spooky in places, groovy in other places, perhaps in a jarring fashion. But mm-hmm. whatever energy the film is into at a given moment, I feel like the music backs up the vibe pretty well. I totally agree. And speaking of groovy, uh, the, the film kicks off with pretty groovy <laughs> vibes. Uh, groovy music, kind of a psychedelic uh, screen splash on there as the aliens from another galaxy or or whatever are communicating with us or, and or the, the, some of the main characters. They talk to each other through TVs, much like we would see in Robot Monster or other such films. Yeah. And I guess, you know, for a film of this caliber and of this time period, kind of advanced, kind of ambitious and for the most part, they pull it off pretty well. It's easy to take it for granted today in our, our screen-based world. But what did you make of the fact that sometimes the aliens talk even to people who are in the same room with them through a TV? You remember these scenes? Oh, uh, yeah. I know there's one later on where somebody's talking to somebody basically in the next room through a television. Um, well, I think there's a scene where the inspector or somebody busts into the room where Michael Rennie is, and he's standing there with his back to him and talking to him, facing him through a television screen on the opposite wall. Hmm. Am I wrong? No, that, it, that sounds likely. I think that might okay. be what happened. As well, for sorry, what maybe, means. maybe that tangent went nowhere. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, no, it's some deep, deep thinking will be required. Perhaps something to do with the aliens view, uh, you know, our relation to media. I'm not sure. 
Well, the very first thing we see is, yeah, these TV screens that are showing a, a sort of tie-dye uh, lava lamp background. You know, it's it's hippie o'clock, and the aliens are talking about their plan to take over planet Earth, which involves resurrecting the bodies of dead Earth scientists and inhabiting them. And then I think initially, now, one thing that I found confusing, Rob, I, I wonder if you took it the same way. I understood it that the aliens initial plan was not to resurrect Dracula or store brand Dracula, Frankenstein and so forth. Instead, it was initially to uh, to like psychically possess like a bunch of beautiful earth women and have them infiltrate the like halls of power and like influence powerful statesmen and scientists and stuff. But then in yep. doing that, they immediately get sidetracked when they accidentally resurrect a Dracula. Did you did you take it the same way? Yeah, it's established pretty early that uh, the Dr. Warnoff here played by Michael Rennie. Uh, is all about resurrecting some not only scientists but some beautiful scientists to go out and control uh, the men of the world and manipulate them. But yeah, they almost immediately uh, pivot and and use this ability not to influence, say, uh, the leader of a country, but instead to seduce the owner of a like of a carnival sideshow Dracula uh, <laughs> um, act and steal his Dracula skeleton that he's showing off. Right. So I guess we're going to start off by like, let's go to Six Flags Frankfurt. Yeah. Yeah. We're somewhere uh, at a German fair somewhere. And there's this guy up there. And again, this is a scene that's apparently right out of uh, House of Frankenstein. But this guy's like, uh, like, see the skeleton of the vampire. Look, behold, it has a stake through its chest. Uh, It's temporarily immobilizing the vampire and uh, preventing it from having life. And so our aliens who've just Minutes earlier, we're like, the humans of this world are so superstitious and they're so emotional. Uh, But then they realized, whoa, wait, actually, monsters do exist. They weren't lying about that. Uh, Here's one here. Um, Go seduce the guy who owns this thing so we can steal it. (laughs) And that's exactly how it goes down. Um, Yeah, yeah. uh, Malava seduces the man, stakes the vampire showman with his own stake right out of the body of the, the, the dead vampire bones. And they also go ahead and kidnap his blonde assistant for good measure. The blonde assistant is a character named uh, Ilona, played by Gela Geisler, who um, uh, wasn't in a lot else. Uh, but she's the, the beautiful blonde assistant that they decide they need her as well, uh, I guess because she's beautiful. And that's like plan A, just to have beautiful people that the aliens control. Um but the, this is a great scene here. They've barely unstaked the vampire skeleton, and it's already beginning to regenerate, reconstituting guts and eyeballs first. Oh, yeah, we, we loved that scene. Like, just Play-Doh intestines and throbbing livers and lungs and eyeballs popping in. That one was good. And it's shortly after this that we meet Craig Hill uh, playing Inspector Toberman, who's immediately on the case. This Mm -hmm. movie keeps us abreast of the investigation every chance it gets. What is Inspector Toberman doing (laughs) or not doing regarding this case? Oh, it will even take a moment to give you a scene of Inspector Toberman just reporting that he has gotten nowhere with the case. (laughs) Or or he seems to have taken a few minutes to himself and gone to a bar to smoke and drink. Yeah. Um, 
not that he just smokes and drinks at the bar. He smokes and drinks pretty much everywhere else he goes. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, even if he's not doing anything, the movie's like, I wonder what Inspector Toberman is doing. Let's go see. But as much as we cut to Toberman, we also cut away from him. So we go back to the alien castle and it's mad science time. Uh, it's a nice laboratory they have going on here. Lots of cool gadgets, some gel colors. Uh, they decide to put the blonde assistant um, into the neuroelectric chair they have there. I was a little foggy on exactly what they were accomplishing with any of this, oh. <laughs> but a lot of scenes of her in an electric chair getting shocks. Well, is it shocks? I thought they explained that it was sounds because there is a sound that's a horrible sound. I, I'm going to say a uh, note to aspiring filmmakers out there. If your film includes a plot element of a device that makes excruciating sounds to torture people, you don't actually have to play those sounds for the audience. You can like <laughs> have it take place within headphones and we just see their reaction or whatever. This film made a really piercing high-pitched squeal that I found unbearable and it went on for way too long. Oh, I mean, that reminds me of Andor. Have you watched Andor yet? No, I haven't. I've heard it's very good. Yeah, this this is a very mild spoiler, but at one point there's an interrogation scene where they explain we have some sounds on what we're about to play for you. It's the like the extermination cries of a species that the empire killed off. Um, and they, they, they talk it up about how awful it's going to be, but they never play the sound for you and they don't have to because right. they've given this this wonderful introduction to what it's going to do to your brain. Yeah, that's how you could do it. You don't actually have to have a piercing high-pitched squeal on the soundtrack of the film. We, the audience will understand what's happening. Yeah, but hindsight's twenty twenty. This was <laughs> this was the late sixties when they filmed this, so uh, they they play it out loud for us anyway. Uh, we also see that they do have a casket, an open casket here with the slumbering Prince of Darkness himself, Count Janos. Yes, uh, and there's I think some mild another one of the the many. Uh, um, um, uh, ideas that are laid out and never really expanded upon. They're like, I wonder what would happen if we injected his blood into new subjects. Oh, yeah. This is Chekhov's gun number seven. They, they've got yeah. a whole Dracula blood plan. Do they do anything with that? Or if so, I don't recall. No, I think I think Nashi was just just went ahead and sort of made notes in screenplay for possible yeah. future projects. So Toberman's still on the case. He checks in. He's like, all right, I need to get a hold of the writings of Professor Ulrich von Frankel's, Frank Salon. Farank Salon. Farank Salon, I think. Farank Salon, yes. Farank Salon. And, oh, boy. Um, and so he goes to like the, the local library to, to check it out. And they're like, hey, someone else was asking about these writings as well. I believe that means that it was Dr. Vornoff that was there looking into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he finds a copy. It's the Anthology of Monsters. He finds it in the archive uh, and almost immediately blood starts dripping on it from a dead man overhead. I have many questions about this book. First of all, this was a book written by a recently living scientist. Why does it look like an illuminated manuscript from the Middle Ages? Uh, yeah. Second, what exactly was this book? This is a, so he's the guy who created the Frankenstein monster, the Pharonxalon mm-hmm. monster, but he also just wrote an encyclopedia of monsters with illustrations by hand. I guess so. I, it's yeah, it's part travelogue of creating Pharonxalon's monster, uh-huh. but also chronicling other monsters, created beings that exist. Uh, that's the way I was led to understand it. 
So we see the the count, the 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 uh, vampire. We see the wolfman. We see the mummy, and then we see the golem. So we're sure to get a golem in this film, right? No, no golem. I think <laughs> I think golem was cut for budget or time. All right, so m- more stuff occurs. We get more time in the alien labs, more electric chair stuff. Um, we go to the, we had a, a nice morgue scene in this really splendid white morgue environment that uh, I feel like I've seen a morgue just like this in many films. So it's always a delight. Um, they start talking about this gelatin su- substance was found on on uh, a victim's clothing that it might be vampire blood. I, I'm, I mean, I was wondering, is this vampire blood? Is this alien blood? I'm not sure, but they sure do talk about it a lot. Oh, yeah. I don't remember what happened with the gelatin substance. They keep checking in on it. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Toberman has been reading the anthology of monsters, which uh, you know deals again with created beings. He's reading more and more about uh, what's out there. Uh, meanwhile, Doctor Warnoff and his stooges—they go out to rob some graves. It looks like, but no, they're digging up uh, Ferroxylon's monster. And meanwhile, I have to point out, Earth is still somewhat populated by humans, so <laughs> things are they, just beginning to roll along here. Yeah, they are really not not hopping to it. You would think their bosses would be like, "Now, what? What exactly is it you're working on? I I thought we had like super weapons from space." Yeah, like they, they clearly established earlier, they want to colonize the planet. Uh, so they need to really step things up a bit. But okay, so they got uh, Ferroxalon's monster. When, when are we going to get oh, a wait, wolfman? Actually, no, I, I need they, a wolfman. When do we get one? I think I, I think actually I was incorrect. They haven't got Ferroxalon's monster yet. Oh, sorry. Uh, instead, they have found Count Valdemar Daninsky, the werewolf, Nashi's werewolf. Um, who seems to be, I guess, subdued in a casket with Wolfsbane or something. Oh, I um, thought it was with a silver bullet. He had a silver oh, well, bullet. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. we, yes, we find that out. That's right, because immediately we cut to surgery, uh, which is a nice surgery scene, nice and bloody, that I think might actually incorporate some stock footage of open-heart surgeries as well. That seems uh, right. They're getting in there, and they uh, they have all, you know, beautiful, colorful equipment, um, beautiful nurses standing around as the aliens remove the silver bullet from Paul Nashi's heart. Uh, and he, this is where we learn that the only way a werewolf can actually be killed is to be shot in the heart with a silver bullet by, not just anyone, but by a woman who loves him, truly loves him so much that she is willing to die for him. <laughs> and I think the problem was he has currently been sitting in suspended animation because he was shot in the heart with a silver bullet by a woman, but maybe she didn't quite love him enough for it to fully work. So instead, he's just been like an incorruptible saint's body lying there frozen in time and waiting for the aliens to come get him. I mean, he's got to be more clear about what he wants from a relationship. Need to put that right up on the profile. I'm looking for a woman who loves me enough to shoot me with a silver bullet and make me stay dead. Yeah. So in, the, in, in resurrecting him, and it's, I was a little unclear, too, on what their, their main goal with him was, because they, they basically seem to bring him back to have him serve as kind of a stooge, as another yeah. bit of hired muscle. But they're not going to take advantage of the werewolf aspect of him as much, because they're saying, well, we're going to use a serum on him that's going to keep him in line, keep him from transforming. Clearly, werewolf Daninsky is just too much for us to control. But if we just have hunky... Uh, Paul Nashi yes. on hand. 
Like we can we can use that. We need somebody to swing a pickaxe. They they need a Paul Nashi who's like seventy percent of the way to werewolf already. So that's mm-hmm. just enough. Like he's really hunky, really beefy. He can do what needs to be done, but he's not going to get out of hand like wolf like wolf mode, uh, Voldemar. But he's hunky. He's attractive. Uh, immediately, the alien, uh, the, the main female alien, Malava, starts falling for him. She's she's already having feelings about him. I think they all do, right? Doesn't the the blonde uh, alienified lady also fall in love with him? Oh, she, yes, she does. Of, she directly falls in love with him, and I think the uh, Maleva, the alien, uh, she is like so inspired by their love for each other that she she gets like sympathy love feelings. I guess I, I don't know how to fully explain that. Yeah, and I guess with the aliens like Maleva, there's this feeling that it's like, well, oh, I'm an alien, but I'm occupying a human form. Uh-oh, human emotions are are welling up, and I don't know what to do with them. But um, uh, our blonde assistant uh, here, she she's just 100% human in love with this man. Right. Anyway, the plan's coming together at this point. Uh, something about using all of these unslayed, undying monsters to create an army of monsters to conquer the Earth, I think. Um, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Uh, we cut to a scene where uh, Daninsky is chained. Uh, he's in a dungeon, and the transformation begins. Classic Wolfman transformation scene here. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Camera cuts away, a little more hair on the hand. Camera cuts back to the face, a little more hair on the face. Uh, repeat, Ow-oo! repeat. Yes. Oh, yeah. Of course, chains are not going to hold a fully transformed werewolf. He pulls the chains out of the wall, and he escapes. Uh, so I guess the the serum hasn't been developed yet or hasn't been administered at this point. Yeah, I was also unclear on that. We touch in with the police briefly. They're not getting much work done. We go back to Daninsky. He's prowling the night. <laughs> no <There's> news. This, <laughs> yeah, no, no news from them. But Daninsky, he's, he's about to try and get stuff done. He's in full werewolf mode, prowling the streets at night. There's a scene where um, a, a young lady's in a car and she's about to light up a smoke, and he reached in, reaches in through the window, the open window, after her. And it's hard to tell if he's going for her or the pack of smokes in her hand. I yeah. I found the scene rather funny because I was like, oh, man, he really he really needs a smoke right now. Yeah, I thought he was grabbing at the cigarette. But no, I think he's just trying to slash at people because later he, uh, he just slashes a random lady in the street. And I thought he was going to eat her because isn't that what a werewolf does? Don't they eat people? But he didn't eat mm-hmm. her. He just kind of like eh, scratch, scratch, and then runs away. Yeah, he murders her and then uh, and then runs off. Yeah, um, basically. So yeah, the first lady escapes by rolling up her window really fast, uh, now, which is all you need. Is the first lady Patty Shepard? I think it is. Yes. Yeah, I believe so. At the time, I was a little confused about this, uh, but yeah, this because she's going to be a survivor that factors into the plot later. Cool. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. But now, at this point, the film hasn't been groovy enough in a little bit, so we cut directly to a like a go-go club, a place called the Golden Egg. Yes, I love this place. And I'm not sure much is really accomplished in this scene, but there's some groovy music playing. Uh, I think the same groovy music from earlier. Cool kids are dancing in a colorful club. Uh, Dr. Varnoff ventures in, likely on alien business, but all this uh, hippie nonsense seems a little bit too much for him. Toberman is there, I guess, on the case. Everyone's having a drink, though. Toberman orders a scotch and water. And, um, and, then, <laughs> and then Dr. Vornoff leaves and nothing really happens. Oh, we were on the lookout for J&B, but I didn't catch any. Yeah, they never, we never got to even see the drink served. It's like, come on, what was this scene about? Nobody interacted with each other and we didn't even get to see the drink. But somehow the aliens, I think they recapture uh, Voldemar. They get the werewolf back. So Paul Nashi is once again enchained. And then they're like, uh, uh, it's somebody's fault that he got out. Probably it's it's probably this blonde woman's fault. Uh, so we're going to play the high-pitched noise at her and at you again. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a torture scene for both her and, um, and Daninsky. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's not going to work. Clearly, they're, they're not going to be able to break this this love bond that is emerging between these two. But, I mean, that's the whole, alien's whole thing. Uh, Dr. Varnoff is, like, is, is always uh, harping on the fact that, that, that passion is a weakness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we need to, to sort of bleed the passion out of these two so they can continue to serve us. Oh, but that's when the alien TV chimes in with news. The mummy of Tal Tet has been found, presumably in Egypt. Thank God. Now we'll get to find out what the mummy's powers are. So there's this some stock footage of a TWA flight going to <laughs> Egypt, presumably. Yes. And and then we see um, 
the two main alien underlings and Count Daninsky in a muscle shirt with a grave robbing pickaxe going into some Egyptian ruins to rob a grave, which also makes me think these three flew together on that TWA flight to Egypt. Well, I wanted to see that scene. They got a werewolf on an airplane. You never bring a werewolf on an airplane. Yeah. You might I mean, do the math the... wrong, cross the international date line, suddenly it's a full moon you didn't plan on. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, they get there. Uh, nice tomb set, even if it basically feels like a redecorated tomb set from any given Spanish horror film of this time period. But uh, they bust through one wall with some very modern-looking bricks, and they bust through another wall, and, boy, the tomb is just loaded with loot. Um, they do, a, like, kind of a... Uh, Indiana Jones-esque amulet reflection deal to to put put some light on the mummy's tomb, and immediately the mummy starts coming to life, uh, emerging from the tomb, and that's when we get this wonderful death by hug scene. And once again, I think this is the only person harmed by the mummy in the whole film. The mummy otherwise just kind of menaces people but never does anything. Until, of course, Paul Nashie destroys him. And Paul Nashie, by the way, destroys everything. Paul Nashie is smashing through walls. Paul Nashie <laughs> is swinging the pickaxe. Paul Nashie is pulling chains and, uh, and like, turning a giant wheel. Paul Nashie is just a, a mountain. And he... Uh, he it'll all make sense if you see him in, a, in this performance, especially, or in any performance. But he's an interesting screen presence because he's not, you know, he's jacked, uh, but he's not what you might think of as your sort of handsome leading man character. I mean, he's, no. uh, you know, he's, he's, he's not a bad looking guy by any stretch, but um, he doesn't have that like sort of Western uh, leading man look. And there's some sort of kind of, you know, awkward uh, elements to the to his energy. There's kind of like a reserved energy to some of his performances, especially in this film. And I would also say he's sort of classic round jacked, not like uh, vacuum packed peanuts jacked. Right. <laughs> so anyway, they've successfully robbed the tomb and I don't know how they fly back. Do they go? I mean, do they travel back via TWA? Do they have to get an extra seat for the mummy who's <laughs> flying with them? <laughs> Um, Great how's questions. that going to work? I have no idea. But they make it back. So <laughs> almost instantly, though, it's clear that, well, your alien lab has a lot of monsters in it at this point, And there are going to be some problems. The vampire is hypnotizing the ladies, uh, but still samples are being collected. Uh, more warnings against human emotions and, and human weaknesses. Uh, and there's this great monologue from Michael Rennie where he's like, look, the mummy's heart is dead. It's empty. Be more like the mummy. Up next, we're going to get this uh, this uh, Frankenstein creature. He, he doesn't even have a heart. Uh, that's that's how great he is. Be like the Frankenstein. And oh, by the way, we're going to make him atomic once we get him. Also, these aliens do not realize that the heart as the seat of emotions is a metaphor. Like the yeah. <laughs> emotions in a literal sense come from the brain. And they're talking yeah. about literal anatomical uh, features as as limiting of emotions. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's all new territory for these aliens, I guess. Now, the vampire, our Count Janos, uh, he escapes. He starts running around the castle at night. Um, he he's uh, he's he's sneaking into um, into the the main alien minion's room and trying to hypnotize her. Yeah, he's being a wretched creep. Yeah. Uh, so he's chased off. Uh, oh yeah, and then he just he just runs away when the aliens catch him doing that. He's he, so he's a wretched creep, but he's also not a very powerful vampire. Did you get the sense that the vampire in this movie even has like super strength or anything? I did not. No, 
He's just he's just creepy and he just comes out at night. I guess yeah. he's really quiet. He's like a rat. Yeah. I think his only power I recall is that he can hypnotize people with his eyes. Yeah. Now this is when Frank Salon's monster is brought in. They've we don't get to see them dig him up or find him in a warehouse or stitch him back together or anything like that, but they're like, "Good news, we found him. Here he is." We got him at a police auction. But then we get a cool scene, though, where um, where, uh, where where Michael Rennie's like, we got to test this monster out. So he sends him into the cell to go after Daninsky. That was a tense scene. I was like, oh, no, you are not going to do this to Paul Nashy. Yeah, because he again, he's on the serum now. We've had scenes where he's been injected, so he can't turn into a werewolf in battle of uh, Frank Salon's monster. So Frank Salon's monster like pretty much almost kills him. Um, has, has him in a death choke hold, and it's the blonde assistant who calls out and says, no, you've got to spare him. And so Michael Rennie's character does, but also makes an, get, unleashes another monologue about the uncaring universe and the, uh, and, and the dangers of passion. Speaking of passion, uh, this whole time there's a developing love story. Oh, my God, this B-plot with the love story with Inspector Toberman, the, the handsome detective, and uh, and Patty Shepard, and then, like, her dad, who's a judge who saw a werewolf once. Yeah, and the werewolf <laughs> in question, I think, is uh, is is uh, Paul Nashi. So yes. it's like there's some sort of connection there, and it really feels unnecessary. Uh, but they they stitch it all together. Well, I mean, I think the detective already believes in monsters. And when uh, Patty Shepard is like, I wanted to tell you, my father knows that werewolves are real because he saw one one time. The inspector's all over it. He's like, oh, finally, yeah. you know, my my theory of the case is developing. I've got to meet this judge dad. Yeah, there there's this great scene. Where I get, you get the impression Toberman has been reading too much about monsters. Yes. And they don't really develop this too much, but there is this fun scene where he goes to a local pub for a drink and a smoke, and he sees a vampire on a date, but then he like kind of goes, and looks again, and, oh, it's just a, a person. Uh, so he's like, well, I better drink more, and has another shot. I was confused by this scene. I think it was not actually a vampire. He was just, he's just got vampires on the brain. Yeah, because there's a later scene where he comes back to his apartment and he looks in the mirror and he sees himself as a monster. And so clearly the case is getting on top of him. He's taking it too personal. Meanwhile, back at the alien uh, monastery, the alien assistants, uh, the, the man and the woman, are giving into their emotions and they're doing sex with each other. <laughs> so Dr. Otto uh, uh, Vernoff here. He watches on via his closed caption television system, does not approve. So he sends in Ferencalon's monster and kill has it kill Dr. Kirian. Yes. Yeah, so like two of the remember, these are aliens inhabiting the resurrected bodies of dead human scientists The I guess the human passion gets too much for them. They fall in love. And as punishment, Michael Rennie sends Frankenstein to kill them or kills one of them. Yeah, kills Dr. Kirian. And then once Dr. Kirian is sufficiently strangled, uh, Ferencalon's monster just casually walks out, which I thought was a nice touch. It's like, well, mission accomplished. I'm just a passionless servant at this point. He has no heart. He only has a capacitor. Yeah. So this is what I was talking about earlier with like the scenes of the, the aliens will not stop talking about how they are superior because they have no emotions. And then it's the movie just becomes all about crushes. It's nothing but crushes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they do kind of deal with it in a in an interesting way in that um yeah, clearly the alien underlings have beginning are given into their emotions. And then 
Meanwhile, the work is getting too much for Toberman. Again, he's starting to see monsters in the mirror when they're not there. He gets a call from Patty's character and he's to go check in on her. He's like, all right, I'm coming. Uh, you know, it seems like it's an emergency, but it's not an emergency, uh, monster emergency. It's a romantic emergency. <laughs> so they spend the night together. Yeah, she, I, I love you because we are humans. Yeah. Back in the lab, uh, Dr. Varnoff decides that Malva needs some uh, some chair time for her irrational emotional choices. <laughs> and there is a, a fun scene, though, where she she like lashes back and she's like, actually, you have emotions. You're letting emotions getting the better of you because you're jealous. And that's why you sent in Ferranxalon's monster to kill uh, Dr. Kirian. You could tell Rennie is like really threatened by this uh-uh you response. He has never yeah. heard anything like this. So, again, there, this does seem like an element of the plot where this could have been expanded upon and, and dwelt upon more. This idea of, like, um, you know, aliens without passions occupying human forms and then being overcome by passions. I imagine this is something that's been explored better in other pictures or books. Well, and picking up on what we just said, the fact that they have passions also now gives rise to new patterns of speech. It gives rise to rhetorical ploys and turns like, like uh-uh, you— yeah. <laughs> now, um, I'm not sure. Well, I didn't accurately represent this in my notes, but the other thing that Malva has done at this point that has earned the ire of her master is that she freed the werewolf and the blonde assistant. She freed um, uh, uh, Daninsky and uh, like she saw the love they have for each other. And she's like, no, it's fine. I, I respect your love. You should go. And she unlocks the, their cage and lets them go free. It's heartwarming. Yeah. So eventually we return to Daninsky and uh, and his blonde uh, uh, accomplice here, and they're wandering some more of those wonderful ruins that you see throughout the picture. And they have some kind of like cool doom metal dialogue here where they talk about how they have no future and they're cursed, but they have this bond between the two of them. And he makes some decision to seek out the judge that we established earlier on uh, that he has some history with. And uh, the the blonde uh, character says, OK, well, let's do that. But also, I love you enough to shoot you with a silver bullet and kill you. Um, so just so you know, I'm, I'm here for you when that time comes. Heartwarming once again. Now, meanwhile, the the, the law enforcement is beginning to close in on, on the operation here. I uh, guess. <laughs> I mean, Toberman's getting ready to wander into the monastery for some reason. Right. He decides to show up. And there's groovy music as he shows up for some reason, but then the gates close behind him. Uh, Dr. Varnoff is, is clearly expecting him. He's admitted to the control room, and Dr. Varnoff chats with him via uh, closed-circuit television for the next room. And uh, he just goes ahead and tells him everything. Uh, <laughs> and not only does he tell him everything that has occurred and is planned, he also says, hey, I have video footage from the future. And he shows him um, Elsa's death. Uh, and he also shows Toberman footage of his own body in chains in a dungeon. And if I understood this correctly, he's also saying, yeah, I'm going to chain you up in the dungeon. Here's footage from the future when it happens. And these other bodies are going to come to life and claw your eyes out. No, not the other bodies. Bats. He says bats will come oh. and claw your eyes out. That's how you will die. I will that makes chain, more sense. I yes. will chain you up and then there will be bats and they will attack your eyeballs. Well, that's that's good because that's more in line with what occurs. Yes. But I was also floored by the execution by bat. What? 
but also footage from the future. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the aliens have video. Like, is this actual video footage from the future? Like information translated through time, or is this like a simulation of what he has in store for him? That was a very good question. I I do not know though. It just sort of transitioned, didn't it? Like he's looking at the footage of himself in the future, chained up in the dungeon with the bats. And then suddenly he just is chained up there. It's almost like by looking at that, it it manifested as reality. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in the human world, um, news of all this has reached the mayor. So now, you know, things are pretty serious. Uh, the judge is there. He's concerned over his daughter's disappearance the judge reveals the whole werewolf Daninsky connection, and everybody's like, all right, let's go investigate this monastery. Let's get all the cops together. Let's head up there and see what's happening. So we got our pitchfork-wielding mob. <laughs> yep. Or they're getting the pitchforks together. Yes. Uh, and meanwhile, back there at the monastery, we see the future has come true. Toberman is in chains. He's harassed by bats. Uh, but as he's being harassed by bats, who shows up to save the day? But Daninsky, the werewolf, he arrives with uh, uh, with his blonde uh, uh, lover here. They free uh, Toberman, and uh, Daninsky warns him, though, it's like, look, you got to get out of here. You got to get things moving along because the full moon is almost upon us. Uh, I'm not injected with serum, and there's no way I can stop what is going to happen to me. He's going to go Hulk mode. Yeah. And as T Toberman escapes, he goes through skeleton and cobweb-ridden crypt. He's going to seek out Ilsa and save her. But for Daninsky, finally the change is coming. Uh, the, the full moon is here, allegedly, somewhere. He starts the long emotional transformation sequence. Um, it's an acting tour de force as he slowly transforms into full wolfman mode. He's like staggering down a hall. You can see the cuts when the cuts yeah. happen to put the more uh, hair on him. But I don't know. It's it's a pretty good sequence nonetheless. And I, I was thinking, OK, we're finally going to see him smack down the vampire. But nope, nope, nope. Somebody else smacks down the vampire. It is. Yeah, Toberman encounters <laughs> the vampire. Once again, emphasizing that the vampire not only doesn't appear to have super strength, it appears to be weaker than the average man. Yeah, Toberman just kind of what breaks a pool cue yes. and corners it, like just kind of walks him into a corner and then stabs him through the the heart. Yes. And then the vampire melts. The vampire does sort of do a flying uh, like a turnbuckle jump at Toberman before that. But other than that, he's he's not very impressive. Yeah, not much of a fight here. But there is a cool fight coming up. There are a couple of cool fights. So you get werewolf versus mummy and then werewolf versus Pharonxalon. Yeah, and the mummy battle was a lot more solid than I was expecting, mainly because of the way that uh, Daninsky deals with the mummy. There's this big spinning wooden wheel part of the set that I'm not sure what function this had in the castle, if this had to do with like oh, something I think it's like, a rack. I think it's a torture Is it a rack? rack? Is it just pure torture? Okay. They show, because Doberman, Doberman, Toberman, whatever his name is, the detective's on it earlier and he's like tied oh, to yeah. it. They're stretching him out. Oh, yeah. But I guess it's multi-purpose because you can also shove somebody inside it. Right. And so that's what Daninsky does with the mummy, shoves the mummy inside this wheel, starts turning the wheel, and then grabs the torch, shoves the torch in there with the mummy, lights the mummy up. And so we get this kind of macabre scene of the, the, the flaming mummy thrashing inside of this rotating wooden torture wheel, uh, which uh, I thought was a pretty, pretty cool visual. 
That's right. But I, I would say this is still not the main SmackDown, which is Werewolf versus uh, Farong. That's right. An atomic Farong coming at a full-powered Valdemir Daninsky werewolf. It is a big, drawn-out battle with lots of uh, pushing and shoving and clawing and strangling and slamming. Eventually, though, uh, the werewolf wins. He pushes the atomic monster into some electronic machinery, and the shock takes the big man down, takes the big monster down. Defeated by electricity, as many monsters in films are. Uh, And then, of course, what's going to happen to the werewolf in the end? Is he going to be shot in the heart by his true love with a silver bullet, not just by uh, his true love, by the woman who loves him enough to die with him in an exploding monastery slash castle slash alien laboratory? Yes, that is exactly what happens. Though they really they just met. (laughs) That's the thing. This 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 romance really um, was uh, was on speed run. Uh, But, yeah, she basically after he's defeated for monster, he turns on her, you know, he can't control the monster. The werewolf just wants to kill and, and slay and all. Right. So she pulls out the gun, she shoots him. And then we cut to the scene where, uh, now we have, uh, Daninsky back in human form, uh, with a, with a gunshot wound in his chest. And then laying next to him also dead is, um, uh, is, is, uh, his blonde lover. And she's been slashed by werewolf, uh, claws and, uh, they, you know, they're hand in hand. So yeah, they're, they're the doomed, uh, they have no future here. And, uh, we get this kind of like, uh, you know, gothic, uh, end to their romance. Though, of course, v- Valdemir Daninsky will be back in a number of werewolf films. They'll do a do-over. Oh, and then the, uh, of course, Michael Rennie is chastised. He, he gets chewed out by his bosses. Yeah, there's the scene where the aliens start talking to him through the TV screen. Uh, and, you know, he's like, well, the lab's about to blow up. Um, and they're like, yeah, you failed. And he's like, well, I failed, but you should spare my uh, assistant here. Her failure was my failure. And the, then the aliens are weirdly like, well, she's not really in any way. And they make her vanish. And then the lab <laughs> blows up, destroying everything. I'm not sure what that meant. Yeah, she does. She just disappears. Is that a better fate for the aliens? I, I don't know how they appeared in the first place. Yeah, it feels like maybe they were working up to something else and they ran out of time or energy to finish that particular part of the plot. But the fight, we get a speech at the end. It's kind of like the speech at the end of uh, it, it Conquered the World, uh, yeah. which we, where we learn that man is a feeling creature. And this time they talk about how actually the aliens thought it was our passion that makes us weak. But in fact, it's our passion that makes us strong. The whole reason they couldn't beat us is because these human bodies, they just fall in love on speedrun mode. And that basically it makes us useless as soldiers in our own destruction. And the aliens seem to, I guess they realize that this is true and decide just to not come back. They're like, yep, Earth unconquerable. Learn too late that it is our passion that makes us strong. Okay, I got one last thought about assignment terror. Uh, it's, it's nearly there. It's not quite complete, but I kept thinking about the monsters in this movie as the breakfast club, right? Because you got can't count Yanosh or count Yanush, uh, whatever his name is, the, the Dracula store brand Dracula. He's Anthony Michael Hall. He's the nerd. Uh, and then you've got the mummy is clearly Molly Ringwald because rich royalty aloof. There you go. Uh, Salon is obviously Emilio Estevez. He is definitely the (laughs) jock of the group. This Frankenstein would eat a bag of 12 sandwiches for lunch and, and so forth. The Wolfman, 
That's Judd Nelson. Because he's the yeah. bad boy with a heart of gold who falls in love in the end. Like his badness is tamed by love. Uh, kind of falls apart because I couldn't think there's not really any an, an equivalent for Ali Sheedy, who's a very important part of the Breakfast Club. Kind of wonder, well, maybe if we had known the golem, the golem would have been Ali Sheedy, like putting pixie sticks on, on toast or something. Uh, but the last element there that clearly works is that Michael Rennie's character is Paul Gleason, the principal, to a T. Yeah, I mean the story arc is there even, right? Like yeah. You you th- you start off thinking he's just cold and uncaring. He doesn't understand these kids, but by by the end of it, you see that there's more to him. You get to know him a little bit more, and uh, it, to a certain extent, the same thing is true with Michael Rennie's character. I think this could have legs. I kind of want to see a monster, a true monster remake of The Breakfast Club. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. Uh, but we'll remind everybody that Stuff to Blow Your Mind, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind channel, uh, primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And then on Fridays, uh, we cut loose and we uh, focus on less important matters with Weird House Cinema, in which we, uh, we set everything else aside and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.